You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good evening, church. Good to see all of you here tonight. Hope you're having a good week. Pastor had a uh, good day of ministry today at the UN. He got to meet with the ambassadors from Slovenia, Kenya, and Gambia. Sounds like a pretty good day's work, doesn't it? And so, uh, so continue to pray for him. Today was the day, in my understanding, he went around and met with them. And if they wanted to meet, he would meet. And uh, so just continue to pray. Friday morning, 8 o'clock our time is when he leads a devotional. So that's, that's really when you want to pray just for soft hearts that God will save souls. So uh, exciting times. So tonight we're going to continue our study in Revelation chapter 2. So you can go ahead and turn there. Revelation chapter 2, we've previously covered... Our study in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, we cover the church in Smyrna, and now we're going to look at the church in Pergamum. I don't even know how to start this, the letter began. The author of this letter was Adele, the English singer-songwriter. Adele, her debut album released in 2009, and I'm sorry, 2008, it drew immediate success, went platinum in the UK and in the U.S., in 2009, she began receiving awards and Best New Artist, Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. She co-wrote the song Skyfall for, that coincided with the James Bond film. And uh, she won all, all types of awards. And uh, three times she's been named Artist of the Year. But on this summer day in 2017, on June the 30th, she sat down to type out a letter and she didn't really know how to begin. And the reason she was writing this letter is because something had happened to her. The previous night on June 29th, she played for a sold-out crowd at Wembley Stadium in London. And this was the third, or that was the second of four nights there in London. She was was finishing up a 123-date world tour. And it was, it was the, the climax was in London with a four-show performance. She was playing in front of, or singing in front of audiences of 98,000 people. It was, it was a big deal. But on this particular night, on this particular day, she was sad. And the reason is because there was something wrong with her voice. And this is what she continued in her letter. She said, I've struggled vocally both nights. I had to push a lot harder than I normally do. I felt like I constantly had to clear my throat. So after the second show, she went to see her doctor. And her doctor confirmed that she had damaged her vocal cords. And she had no option but to cancel her shows. So the most powerful young voice in the music industry had lost her voice. Now, it's disappointing when a a musician loses her voice, but it's tragic when a church loses its voice. And you may wonder, how does a church lose its voice? A church loses its voice when it compromises. When a church compromises with a secular culture and begins to give in and give back ground, and uh, compromise on various issues, the church loses its voice. Before long, the, the, the community and world no longer look to the, cho- the church because they say, well, they're no different than we are. They don't, they don't have a voice. They don't speak to issues uh, f- from God. And you could give a number of examples of churches this has happened to over, over the time where at one point they were strong, but then they began to compromise And even though their doors may be open, no one's looking to them for to speak as a voice of truth. And so we can lose our voice through compromise. And so tonight we're going to talk about the compromising church. 
When you think of compromise, it's a great word for relationships. It's a great word for marriage. It's a great word for friendships. We all understand compromise is, is give and take as part of a normal relationship. But compromise in the church can be damaging. Now, sure, there's certain things internally we may compromise on, like color of the carpet or, you know, just things like that. Of course, we can compromise on. But in terms of doctrinal issues and, and other things, we just can't compromise because it causes damage. Here's a few ways that the church can compromise today in an unhealthy manner. The church can compromise its doctrinal beliefs in order to appease a secular culture. The church can compromise its standards for leadership in order to cater to immature and untested Christians. The church can compromise its fervency for evangelism in order to make people feel more comfortable and never challenged. See, compromise is easy. And compromise can happen in church. It happens all the time. Uh, in fact, I was visiting with one of our members yesterday, and he's, he was talking to someone from California, and the guy was saying how out there, uh, at least where he was, the churches were just caving into the culture. So it's, it's common. And tonight we're going to look at a church called in Pergamum, and it was a classic case of the compromising church. So look there with me there in Revelation chapter so we'll just we'll continue our study here and look at verses 12 through 17. Now, first, let's acquaint ourselves with the city, ancient city of Pergamum. It was located 70 miles north of Smyrna and 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. The city was elevated 1,300 feet above the Caicos River. For those interested in archaeology and history, this was, Pergamum was second only to Ephesus. I mean, if you have an eye for history, an eye for antiquity, man, you would love to go to Pergamum. And today, just beneath the ancient city of Pergamum is a modern city of Bergama and uh, Turkey. And so at the time John wrote this book, of Revelation, Pergamum had been a significant city for about 400 years. And uh, it was very attached to the... Um, uh, very much in favor of the Roman Empire. It, it had been the location of the Attila dynasty, which, which stemmed from one of Alexander the Great's generals. And uh, as the city grew, it just pledged its loyalty to Rome. And so the city thrived under Roman leadership and grew to be a city of about 200,000 people. So it was the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire. So it, it was a significant, influential city. But it was, it was really known for several things. First, it was a center of religious cults, and it was a medical center. Uh, emperor worship was, was prominent in, in Pergamon. In fact, it was more prominent there than in any, any other surrounding city. If you visited Pergamum in the first century AD, you would notice there was a temple there and an, and an, and an altar dedicated to Zeus. The, that our altar was 40 feet high. And you can see it today if you go to visit in Berlin. It's at a museum, uh, or it's housed in a temple there in Berlin. And then in Pergamum, there was a false god of Asclepios. Asclepios was highly esteemed by many and known as the god of healing. So the symbol for this false god was a serpent. And so a large part of the city was dedicated to this false god of Asclepios, and then there was this altar of Zeus. But Pergamum became known as a medical center. So it was, a, it was a place of religious cult, emperor worship, and it was a place where there was a medical center. There was a famous physician there in Pergamum in the second century known as Galen. Galen was known for his care of wounded and dying gladiators. As they fought in the gladiatorial games, they were injured. 
he, they would go to Pergamum or he would go to them and then he had a medical practice and he would minister and try to care for these gladiators in Pergamum. Second, Pergamum was known as the intellectual center. It was, it was similar to Athens or Alexandria. You know, Alexandria had the, the, the world's largest library at that time. I uh, would have loved to have seen that. And the second, the second largest library was in Pergamum. They had about 200,000 volumes. And then third, Pergamum was known, was a leading city for the production of parchment. Parchment was a material that, that you would write on. So that's, that's what it was known for. So Jesus had a word for the church there. And he writes there in verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Right. Now, we, we said earlier, I believe the angel is the pastor of that church. So Jesus has a word for the, for the church. He said, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And you have to go back to Revelation 1.16, but you, you discovered that's Jesus. Um, he's talking, he, these are the words of Christ. And that imagery really goes back to Isaiah 11.4, which, is which is a picture of judgment or God's justice, rather. And so here's, here's, here's the words of Jesus, who, who is just and holy. Now, the sword in the Roman world was, view, was viewed as a tool of judgment or a tool of punishment. And so from the very beginning of the letter, John is, or Jesus is telling them, hey, I'm really the one that has the authority, Jesus is saying. You, you know, Rome may, may the, yes, they have some secular worldly authority, but really Jesus is the one who has the ultimate authority. He's the one who really has the sword of power here. He's the one who is really in control. He's greater than the emperor. He's greater than anyone else. And so Jesus communicated. He knew three things about this church. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell. Now, this term for know is it's also used in the other passages in Smyrna. Uh, in Smyrna, it said, he said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. In uh, Ephesus, he said, I know your works. And here he says, I know where you dwell. And so uh, this word to know means complete and intimate knowledge. Jesus had full, exact knowledge, comprehensive knowledge of everything that was going on in Pergamum. And that's such a good word for us because sometimes Satan will tempt us to doubt that God really cares. And sometimes you will begin to wonder, does anybody really care what I'm going through? Does God even care? I feel alone. I feel like I'm just wandering out here and no one cares and no one is interested. And, and, John, and, and John is saying, Jesus knows everything about this church. Jesus knows everything about you. And, um, you know, Paul even, even, I'll just read this to you real quick. Paul wrote this over at the end of 2 Timothy, the end of his life. He said, in my first defense, no one came to stand by me. This is in uh, 2 Timothy 4.16. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I was all alone. I was deserted, but God was there. Jesus was there, and he strengthened me. He was there. He had not left me. He had not deserted me. And so Jesus knows your situation. He knows your infirmity. He knows everything about your, the relationships you're struggling with. He knows all of those things. And so he says, I know where you dwell. Now, what, was, what was significant about that? Well, Christians in Pergamum, were, they were called atheists. They were called haters of humanity because they didn't worship the Roman emperor. So because of that, they said, well, you're, you're an atheist. You don't worship the, the, this person that we worship, 
So you're just an atheist. They were, they were viewed as exclusivists, or you're, you're intolerant of other religion. The Jews in Pergamum were protected because they had an ancient history, but Christians didn't have any history. They, you know, by the time of this was written, they had maybe 60 years, 50, 60 years. They were, they were outcast. And so Jesus says, I, I, I know where you dwell. I know, I know the city that you're in. I, I know it's hard to live there. And, and he tells us how hard it was. He says, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne. Satan is enthroned, was enthroned in Pergamum. Now, you could view this generally or specifically. This could refer to maybe the altar of Zeus. It could refer to because they had emperor worship there, that that was satanic. I think in general, it's just referring to the opposition that Christians experience in the city from Satan because he, they endured persecution. And so Satan had power and influence over Pergamum. So he says, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know all about Pergamum. I know it's hard there. And, and you guys know when you go, to, you go to certain cities, you just sense spiritual darkness, don't you? New Orleans, maybe Las Vegas or different places, you can just feel the darkness. If you've traveled to other parts, other countries of the world, in India, places like that, you just you, you, you sense it. It's like, man, there's just a spiritual darkness here. That, that's what he's saying. He's like, there's this, it's, a, it's a stronghold. There's, there's not many believers there. There's not that much light, not much presence of God there. So there's, there's a, there is, Satan's throne is there. That, that's what he's saying. I, I, I know where you are. And then third, he said, you hold fast to my name. Yet, yet you hold fast to my name. So yet in the midst of that pagan environment that you live in, you hold fast to my name. Hold fast. It's in the present tense. It's talking about ongoing faithfulness. Like, man, they just grab onto it and they're not letting go of Jesus. It means to grasp forcibly, to remain firm. That, that's what these believers were. Man, they just, they just grabbed on and said, I don't know what, you know, all this is going on around me. I'm holding on to Jesus. And so Jesus was holding on to them. And he said, hey, Jesus said, I know that. I've got complete knowledge that you're holding on to me. And I, I'm watching. It's, it's not going on unnoticed here. Man, what, what an impressive trait for this church. And then Jesus goes on and said, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my, my faithful witness. Well, who, who was Antipas? Well, there's a longstanding view that said he was a dentist and a doctor in Pergamum. And he secretly would spread the gospel. And the Romans didn't like it. And so they, they, con- they condemned him to die, and they burned him to death. And the word is used here, martus. We get the word martyr from it. So Antipas was viewed as a martyr. Just like if you go back, remember in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was killed, he was a martyr for his faith. Antipas was a martyr. He, he held firmly to Christ. He didn't back off his relationship with Jesus. And because of that, they killed him. And so Jesus says, man, even in the days of persecution where they martyred someone, you held faith, you held, you held fast to me. They could have easily said, well, I, you know, uh, it was great being a Christian when things were nice and convenient and it was beneficial to me. But now that you know, now that they're killing people, maybe I, maybe I don't want to be as outspoken for Jesus. Jesus said, I, I know. I know you haven't backed down. I know you are holding fast to me. And so he says, uh, who was killed among you, talking about Antipas. 
where Satan dwells. Notice at the very beginning of verse 13, it says, I know where you dwell. And the very end of 13, it says, where Satan dwells. I know where you dwell, where, where Satan dwells. So I know exactly where you are. You are living in a pagan city that is where Satan is enthroned. Just you're experiencing hate. Everything that's happening to you there is stemming from Satan, is what he's saying. It's satanic opposition to, to Jesus. That's, that, that's what's happened. That's, so that, that's where these people were. So here's our first point. I just got two points for us tonight. First one, we must refuse to compromise our testimony for Christ. This is what we can learn from the church in Pergamum. We must refuse to compromise our testimony for Christ. Jesus commended them for remaining faithful to him in spite of the persecution, the satanic culture in which they live. Do you think Jesus would commend us today? There's something for you to think about. Would he, would he commend, would he say, Valleydale, I commend you. I know where you are. I know I see you holding fast. Would, I, I hope that he would. I, I believe that he would, but it's just a penetrating question. Would, would, would Jesus commend us for holding fast to him? Or would he say, you know, there, yeah, I see that in some days, but other days I see you letting go. In other days, I see you relaxing. I, tell you, I see you taking your foot off the gas. What do you say? I know, I, I see you holding fast to me. Uh, some years ago, 2013, there was a man named Ryan Rotella. Ryan Rotella was in a, a class at Florida Atlantic University. He was in an intercultural communications class. And the professor said, hey, I want everybody to take out a sheet of paper. I want you to write the name Jesus on it. I want you to throw it on the ground. I want you to step on it. And so Ryan said, I'm not doing it. And so Ryan got sent out. He went, or, or, or Ryan went, once he left the class, he went and complained to the university officials and they suspended him. And they, they suspended the professor too, but it was, really, um, it was really just for safety. They let him come back. The teacher resumed his teaching responsibilities. And so the Liberty Institute got involved. And oh, and by the way, the professor reinstituted that same stomping method of, of the name of Jesus. And so the Liberty Institute got involved, and they held a meeting, and eventually the university officials apologized to Ryan, and he was fully reinstated as a student. But that was, that was six and a half years ago in Florida. You know, those, those times of persecution, you don't really hear about it, but I'm telling you, it's, it's out there. But Ryan stood fast. He held fast to Christ, even though he probably got made fun of. He probably the only one in there. I, I, I would imagine there were other believers in there. They just didn't have the courage to do what he did. But he did. So uh, Christians should be winsome, kind, gracious, compassionate, but we should hold, fa- hold fast to Christ no matter what. So Jesus is commending them for holding fast to him. But, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. But I have a few things against you. Now remember, last time we saw that was up in, up in this church at Ephesus in verse four. And Jesus said, but I have this against you. And so anytime Jesus says, but I have something against you, it's serious. But here he says, but I have a few things, not just one. I've got a few things against you. And he's going to list two things that I believe are representative of more. But he gives us at least two here in verse 14 and beyond. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, who was Balaam? Well, you have to go back to Numbers chapter 22. Num- Numbers 22 
I'll just read you just a little bit of this to give you a little flavor. Moab was in great dread of the people. So Balak was the king of Moab. He saw the Israelites. He knew about them, and he was terrified of them. He said, they, they, are, they are so far outnumber us, we have no hope of defeating the Israelites. And so what, what uh, Balak did, he says in, in verse, um, verse 5, he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of, of Beor at Pether, which is near the river. And he says, behold, a people has come out of Egypt. Talking about the Israelites. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now. Balak talking to Balaam, sent this message to him. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them for the land, from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. And so Balaam eventually comes, and if you read 22, 23, 24, Balaam doesn't curse them, he blesses them. Three different times he blesses them. And so as you read this in Revelation, the teaching of Balaam, you think, what was so wrong with that? What was, what was wrong with blessing? Well, nothing was wrong with that. But it was what he did besides that that what got him in trouble. So look, look in verse Numbers 25 now. Numbers 25, where it begins, it says, When Israel lived, uh, it said, The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people, that is, um, the people of Moab invited the Israelites to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So let me, you, you see the mistake they made, but how does Balaam connect with that? Flip over to Numbers 31 and verse 16. Numbers 31, 16. Behold these on Balaam's advice, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So Balaam told, told Balak, hey, I'm not going to curse them, but if you really want to get God's judgment on this people, just invite them over to your pagan religious festivals. They'll end up eating and, and, and eating food sacrificed to these false gods. They'll end up in, 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 having relationships with the ladies, and God will punish them. So he gave him advice. Here's how you defeat Israel. I'm not going to curse them, but here's what you do. Here's how you defeat them. Does that make sense? So that's what happened. And that, that's, what, that's what happened in, verse 20, in chapter 25. And in, in 31, you see well, it was because of Balaam. And so that's what he's talking about here. He says there's apparently some who held to the teaching of Balaam. Well, what was the teaching of Balaam? You got to keep going. It, or you read the rest of that verse. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. That's what we just read. So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So Balaam led Israel through Balak into sin. And now you have people who are followed that same teaching that say, hey, it's okay to engage in immorality. It's okay to engage in idolatry. You can still be in the church and you can do all of those things. That, that was the teaching of Balaam. And so there's, 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 no, there's no consequences. There's no exclusion from church membership. Just live how you want. Engage with the pagan environment. Man, mix it up with them. Go to their pagan festivals. 
engage in sexual immorality, there'll be no consequences, and you can stay in the church and everything will be fine. That was the teaching of Balaam. And so you had false teachers in the church saying, hey, it's okay to do these things. Man, it's, it's fine. There's forgiveness. There's just enjoy. Man, we're, we're trying to reach a, a secular culture here. And so apparently there were, there were people in the church inviting people in the church as well. Hey, come join us. Come on. We're going to the pagan festival. Just come on with us. And so um, that, that's what was happening. The Balaam's name means swallow the people. And so the people were being swallowed into sin, swallowed into this false teaching. And so that was, that's, that's the teaching of Balaam. So, so that was going on in the church. And, they, and, and the church was not dealing with it. They were just letting it happen. And so you're, the, the church is, is compromised with the culture. And so there were, that was the first group. Verse 15 gives us the second group. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And there's two different views on who the Nicolaitans were. The first is that they were followers of Nicholas, one of the seven original uh, guys set aside in Acts chapter 6 to serve. And uh, the word deacon there is used in Acts chapter 6. So when we talk about deacons, sometimes we'll go all the way back to Acts chapter 6. So, so Nicholas was one of those, but um, perhaps his followers were called Nicolaitans. I don't know that's for sure. That's just one of the theories that's out there. So um, this group, the Nicolaitans, had false views of Jesus. They believed that the divine Jesus did not suffer death on the cross, that uh, he departed the physical Jesus prior to his crucifixion. So that's problematic because that would mean God did not pay for our sin or did not die for our sins. That's, that's a problem. So that, that was another false teaching in the church. Now, the Nicolaitans could also have been, their name actually means people conquerors. That's what the name stands for. So it could have, it could have been a group who um, paraded around the church who believe in they're better than everybody else. They didn't believe in the priesthood of believers. And so that, that could have been the Nicolaitans as well. So you have this teaching of Balaam and this teaching of the Nicolaitans who, uh, if you take the first view, they had a false view of Christ. So you had these two things going on in the church and the church was not dealing with it. The church didn't address it. The church didn't say, hey, we're going to have to discipline you for that. Hey, your views are out of bounds. Hey, you're corrupting our membership. Hey, you're hurting our church. They, these, these two things were just coexisting within the church. And so Jesus, that's why he says, I have this against you. You haven't dealt with these issues. I'm, I commend you for all the great things that you've done. You're holding fast to me, but you haven't dealt with these issues. And so Jesus says here, verse 16, therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. And in the original, the, the repent is the first word in the sentence. Repent, therefore. Repent means to change one's own, to change one's ways ethically and spiritually. It means to change one's mind, to feel remorse, and to be converted. So he's telling them, hey, turn around. Realize what you're doing is wrong. Realizing, realize you're allowing these two things to exist, and they shouldn't be in the church. So deal with them, address them. And remove them from the church in a loving way. Repent quickly is the idea. There's a suddenness to this term. Like deal with it now. Don't don't delay. Don't don't put it off any longer. Don't don't think you can compromise and get away with it. So the idea is this church has become indifferent. It is compromised. It's become apathetic. 
indifferent. Oh, it'll be fine. We'll, we, we, we can coexist with this. And so just as Balaam led Israel into sin, the false teachers were leading the church into sin. They had become indifferent. They were compromised. So Jesus warned them. He said, I'm coming to you soon. Or he said, I will come to you, to you soon, to the church. I interpret that he's coming to judge the church. Now the church is full of believers who are saved, but somehow he's going to judge them. What that means, I don't know. If you look back to uh, Ephesus, he says, I'm, I'll remove your lampstand. I'll, I'll shut you down. I'll just, tell, I'll just remove your light so that you're no longer a light to the community. And, and so is that what he, would, what he would do here? I don't know. He doesn't say. He just says, I will come to you soon and war against them. So it will, Jesus is going to wage war against the false teachers with the sword of my mouth, Jesus said. Is, this is so interesting. Do you know how Balaam died? Balaam was killed with the sword. And Jesus said, I will come against them with the sword. It's judgment. And so he's saying, either you deal with the false teachers or I will deal with them, but I will come with the sword. So it will be far better if the church would deal with them because hopefully they would repent and they would say, we, we have been wrong. We, we, no one taught us or you know, no one had confronted, loved us enough to confront us with the truth before. So, so the problem with this church was not a lack of love for Jesus. Remember back in Ephesus, Jesus said, you lost your first love. This church had love for Jesus. That was not their problem. Their problem is they had compromised. They were refusing to deal with the evil in their midst. Does that make sense? They loved Jesus, but they just had become passive and had compromised. So this leads us to our second point tonight. We must refuse to compromise when it is necessary to confront false teachers. We must refuse to compromise when it is necessary to confront false teachers. Oakmont Country Club was started a number of years ago. The golf course uh, began in 1903. And so, um, Jonathan, you're familiar with Oakmont, aren't you? Yep, I figured you would. And so Oakmont is in Plum, Pennsylvania. I would, I would love to see Oakmont. Okay, if, you, if you're a golf person, this is, this is one up there with pretty close to Augusta National, right? It's, it's had nine U.S. Opens. It's hosted three PGA Championships. I mean, it, it's a big-time course. It's known for the church pew bunkers, they call them, on, on, on number three. Uh, those, are the, those are the church pew bunkers there. It's, it's known for lightning-fast greens. Um, when, the, when this course was originally built, it had an open concept, okay, meaning very few trees. Well, in the 1960s, there was a member there who was also a member at Augusta National, and he said, you know, we need to put some trees on this golf course. And so they, because that was the symbol of beautification in those days. So they began planting trees uh, at Oakmont, and they did. They planted a number of trees. They dedicated some to people, and they, they stood for different things. And so, you know, that, that, that was great. But as you know, trees grow. And so over time, Oakmont lost its uniqueness. It was no longer an open concept course. It was a, ever, just like most all the other courses, what I understand, in western Pennsylvania. The fairways were lined with trees. And as the trees grew, they began to take over the golf course, and they began to deprive the course of much-needed sun, which hurts the turf quality. So it was deteriorating. So there was a group in the, in the club who just said, you know what, we need to get rid of some of these trees. But 
there was a group that said, no, no, we don't need to get rid of these trees. So there was this tension. So the group that wanted to get rid, I, I love this story. I've waited for years to tell this story uh, in a sermon. And so there was a group over here who wanted to get rid of the trees. So you know what they started doing? They started getting rid of the trees. The director of golf knew all about this, this covert operation. So the superintendent was involved in it, the director of golf. I don't know who else in the club knew about it. But they would just point out a tree, and the superintendent would have 12 of his workers come in at 4 o'clock in the morning. And they would go out there, and they would take a golf cart right in front of the tree they were going to cut down, and they would use just the lights from that golf cart to shine on that tree. And they would take the tree out, and they would grind the stump, and they would put fresh soil on top, and they would put grass down. They would sod it. They would fluff up the grass to make it look like nothing happened, and then they would go on with their day. They did this tree after tree after tree after tree. They just started coming down. And no one noticed. Do you know how long this went on? Four years. For four years at Oakmont Country Club, they were taking down tree after tree after tree after tree. The superintendent, no one was keeping records of how many. They would take like three or four down at a time. They took down almost 8,000 trees. Before one day... One of the members apparently finally hit a ball over in an area, and he thought, there was a tree here last time I was here. They threatened lawsuits. There was almost fights. It was an ugly thing. You see, false teachers are like those workers in the dark. They go around in the dark. They corner people in hallways. They hand out literature. And there they have an agenda to harm the church. Now, those guys on the golf course were just doing their job. That's what their boss told them to do. But when it comes to the church world, false teachers are like those workers working in the dark. They don't want anybody to see them. They want to appear normal. They want to fit in. But they have an agenda. And their agenda is to pull you over to their side and to to pull you away. And just to think, just so you know, this is not pie in the sky We've had one in the short time that I've been here, okay? Not in a leadership position, not in a teaching position, but we had an issue that we had to address that was becoming problematic. So it happens. There, There are false teachers out there. It happens. So either we can address it in a loving, hopefully godly way, or you can ignore it like the church at Pergamum and just hope that it goes away. But Jesus says, I have this against you. So they had not dealt with it. And so look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That goes back to Mark chapter 4. This has been used in previous passages. It's, It's a warning for the church to listen. Jesus is saying, listen, church, listen. Listen and obey these words or expect judgment. The words of Jesus are not just for our consideration, they're for our transformation. So first, we we have to obey. And if if we obey, he says, to the one who conquers, that is the one who is a follower of Jesus, who remains faithful to him, he says, I will give, there are two things, some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna. What's the hidden manna? Well, remember manna goes back to the Old Testament. Remember in Exodus 16, it was the supernatural provision from God in the wilderness. God rained down manna from heaven. And for 40 years, he fed them on manna. He sustained them in the wilderness. 
And so if you read Hebrews 9, it says in verse 4 that in the Ark of the Covenant, there were the Ten Commandments, there was Aaron's staff, and there was a golden urn holding the manna. So there's a, there's a, there's a theory that says when the Babylonians came to Jerusalem to destroy the temple, before they came, Jer- the prophet Jeremiah took the Ark and went and buried it at Mount Sinai. And when Jesus comes back, that ark will be brought back to the new temple, and it'll be there. Now, is that true? I don't, I don't know. It, it could be. It could be. And so the, the idea is that in the Messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ, we will enjoy uh, just, it represents the, the Messianic feast in the kingdom. Um, however, it also could mean the supernatural provision of God that we experience on this earth. Just as Jesus, God sustained his followers with literal manna, God sustains us with his presence, with his Holy Spirit, with his power all throughout life. So I think both are actually true here. We are sustained by the presence of God, and then we look forward to that day in heaven when we will be at the Messianic feast with Christ. So that's part of our reward So Jesus says, you stay faithful to me, I will sustain you in this life, and I will give you a reward in heaven. And then secondly, he says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this is interesting. The local color of the rock in Pergamum was black. And so when a building was built, someone's name was placed on it, they had to import white stone from somewhere else, and they would, it was typically marble, and they would, they would put the, the name up there. So white stone was not common in Pergamum. But, but stones were, giving, uh, were given to gladiators. When they were freed from their duty, and, and they, they were given a stone and had their name and their date of discharge on it. Here's your stone. Also, at the cult of Asclepios, which we talked about earlier, when they initiated their new members, they would give them a stone with their name on it. And so what I believe this is saying, this is like, this is like a token to get into heaven. Ultimately, it's our relationship with Christ that gets us there. But this is just, I'm going to give you a stone with your name on it, I believe is what he's saying. Now, it could also be this. this there's a second view. I don't know which one is right. Um, but it says this uh, so the name would be, it would be my name, your name on this white stone. When it says a new name, it means new in quality. That is, when we see Jesus, we'll have a glorified body. There'll be no more sin. And so we'll, in that sense, we'll be new. We'll have a new quality to our life. Now, this, this is interesting. It could also be the name, a name of Jesus that he has not yet revealed. In Revelation nineteen twelve, it says, talks about Jesus returning. There's a name written on him that no one knows but himself. So when it's talking about this name on a white stone, this could be a name for Jesus. He's not yet revealed. And the only person who will know it is, is the person who receives it. Isn't that interesting? So that's one, it shows the authority and power of God, but two, it, it shows the intimacy of God that every, every person gets a certain name for Jesus. Go, wow. Man, I never, I never knew you were called that. That's the type of intimacy that we can have with Christ. Either way, it's a reward. It, it looks forward. Jesus says, I'll give you a hidden man. Hidden man. I'll give you a white stone 
Look forward, he's saying, church. Look forward to the day where you will be with me in heaven. Stay, stay faithful. I know you're in a pagan culture. I know you're in the midst of all those things, but don't compromise. Hold fast to him. Do you know what the name Pergamum means? Pergamum comes from the Greek word gamos that refers to marriage. The church at Pergamum was married to the world. They weren't married to Jesus. That's the whole irony of this whole story. And so he's telling them, church, I want you to repent and come back to me. I want you to repent and be married to me. And so that's the lesson from the church at Pergamum. Who are we married to? Or is, is Christ the first love of our life? Are we holding fast to him? Or are we compromising? Are we compromising as a church? Or are we compromising personally? Maybe some of you just individually think, man, it's, maybe, maybe I'm compromising. Maybe there's, there's, there's some type of area of compromise in your life right now. And the good news is, if we just will repent, if we'll just change our mind and realize, you know what, that's wrong, that's wrong, and turn back to Christ, we'll get our voice back. We'll get our voice back for him. We'll be able to share Christ, and people will actually listen to us. They'll say, you know what, you're different. You're right. You're, I, I, see a, I see a difference in you. I, I see something, something unique about you. Well, Adele decided to get some help for a vocal problem. Uh, she had an incredibly delicate, risky surgery called vocal cord microsurgery. And Dr. Steven Zedels performed this surgery where the margin of error is measured in fractions of a millimeter. How would you like to do that surgery? Fractions of a millimeter. If he just did one little thing wrong, he could have, have injured her voice for the rest of her life. But thankfully, it was a, it was a success. As she is still singing, so you obviously know that. But her voice was restored in 2012. And so the good news is that if you have compromised, you can repent and God will restore your voice. So the lesson of the church of Pergamum is remain married to Jesus. Don't compromise. We'll try not to compromise as leaders in the church, but don't compromise personally. Think, well, I've got to do this and this in order to reach this person. Well, you can become all things to all men without compromising your witness for Christ. Amen? All right. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for uh, the word of God. Thank you for this truth that we've read tonight. And Lord, I pray that um, this church would continue to hold fast to Jesus, that no matter what is happening around us, Lord, we would continue to hold fast to Christ we love you and we worship you. And Father, I pray that just even in our individual lives, we, would, we too would remain fully committed to you, that Jesus would be the first love in our life. And Father, if that's, if that's not the case, then Lord, we just repent. And Lord, would you help us, have mercy on us. Help us to be a church that's known for loving Jesus, but also as a church that's known for purity and doctrine a church that deals with hard things when it's, when, it's, when it's necessary. So, Father, thank you for each person here, and I just uh, trust that you use this to encourage them tonight. And I pray that all of us would leave here more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So please apply this to our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.